I think we can call this one, we've achieved normality and what the hey just happened. This is the Mouse Podcast, episode 3, recorded June 2017. I'm Allie Jensen. This week we'll be talking to Anne and Jason McDonald about character development in stories. Later, Jason will be joining assistant lead developer Jarek Thomas and senior developer Nate Graga as they discuss their adventures in project and team management. Mousepaw Media is powered by open source software like Atom, a hackable, feature-rich text and code editor for the 21st century. For more information and to download, go to atom.io. That's A-T-O-M dot I-O. I'm here with Anne and Jason McDonald, authors in the driving force behind Mousepaw Media. Hello. Hello. What's it like working together as writing partners for the Horseradish Creek game? Oh yes, our adventure series. Um, it's been it's been a blast. I, Jason came up with the idea when he was like seven or eight, and um, he wrote a very short piece on it, and then asked me if I could help him because he wanted a, Sunny, a full book. Sunny and LC and the mystery of the Noonday Bandit is how the whole thing came out. Which, retrospectively, to me, being my own worst critic, was terrible. But that's only. If I were to write it as a 25-year-old, but as, you know, as age eight, it was, wasn't too bad. No, it wasn't, it wasn't bad, and it, it was inventive. So, um, you know, we decided to let it sit for one summer, and then he would revisit it as part of his English uh, curriculum. And uh, he wrote a short story for it, but he felt like there was more to it. And so we decided to flesh out the two characters, and they had to have a background and everything. Gave so. them new names, changed the world around a bit, and and um, and then one passing mention in working on the story, one passing mention to um, Sonny, now Suneo, uh, going to visit his cousins for a family reunion in um, Otter Cove, later Oyster Bay, um, and then... Mom and I started talking about, well, what if it wasn't in Oyster Bay? What if it was, maybe he goes to an island. If you, okay, what if his family's from the island? Okay, so maybe that's part of his culture. And it's amazing how stories take on a life of their own, actually, at that point. Yeah, and to have two characters that are polar opposites. That actually made it fun. And Jason relates more to LC. Definitely. Um, and I relate more to Cineo. They're, they're polar opposite characters, but they they work so well together. So, how did you create these characters? <laughs> they showed up. <laughs> I think most characters show up out of the blue, actually. Well, for us anyway. Yeah, for us anyway, yeah. Us and many other authors. The characters show up, they introduce themselves, and then you have to ask questions to find out more. You don't get the full package. You have to push. Uh, writing is uh, schizophrenia for fun and profit, I often say, uh, which is... It's, I mean, the difference is we know the difference between reality and fiction, but the characters like blurring lines, um, entering into our world and just at inopportune times. If you see someone having an argument in the, who was, I think it was, someone was talking, one of our writer friends was talking about if you see someone having an argument in a grocery store, yelling at somebody who's not there, they're probably a writer. Yeah. Because yeah. characters are in can be absolutely infuriating. We don't make up the stories; we write them down. Yeah. And someone said, "Well, that, that makes it sound easy." No, it's harder. If we made it up, it would be a lot easier. It's harder because we're writing. We want to go one way, and then the character stops talking. We're like, "What? What did we do wrong?" Well, back here you said this, and I'd let rather it was this, and that's where most of our rewrites come from. It's character decides, "Oh, we want to go a different way instead." Yeah, and it's also irritating when you're working on one story with one set of characters and you get the characters from the other story show up and go, hey, it's our night. Uh, I'm right in the middle. I don't care. We want you to drop that and do our story now. Characters and they won't get jealous. shut up. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to stop. You know, it's like, 
sometimes the characters war with each other. It's like, okay, I will get to you in 20 minutes, but if you keep bugging me, I'm not going to work with you at all. So sometimes that works and sometimes it does not. And of course, sometimes it helps by bribing them by letting them appear in cameo in the other book. <laughs> that that works too sometimes. Um, I've gotten a few characters to shut up that way. Well, okay. So these characters show up. Um, and how do you know that they're the main character? How do you know which character is a main character? The one with the story to tell. They have to be the central um, person or persons um, with Sineo uh, and Elsie, the Horseradish Creek Gang story would not be the same. If we had Digger as the main character, it would really go nowhere because Digger's, he's just so pragmatic. He's and too stable. He's too stable. Main characters, with few exceptions, main characters have to be unstable. Stable characters don't make for very good stories in general because they're they're... They're assured of themselves, they're assured of who they are and their surroundings. Um, so you either have to destabilize the character's personality or you have to destabilize the environment. You know, you take someone like Bilbo Baggins, who seems perfectly stable, except for a bit of boredom, and um, you throw him onto a quest with uh, nine dwarves and a wizard. wizard. <laughs> And he becomes, throughout the book, he becomes very much unstable. He doesn't know what he's doing. Or you could take Arthur Dent and blow up his planet, and then, you know, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's just searching the galaxy for a cup of tea. So main characters, memorable main characters, have to be inherently unstable in some way. Uh, because that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. It's, it's the characters trying to find stability, at least in character-driven stories. Right, and, and ours is character driven uh one of the interesting things is you know going back to digger he has some things happen to him but it really does not rock his world he's like eh, let's move on um there's no real challenge he's just so stinking pragmatic and, and it, there are times that his friends just want to strangle him and of course that goes back to his backstory you know he lost his mom at a very young age but you know he was old enough to have a relationship with her so when you tend to be generally a low emotion type of individual when you go through something like that. Um, it takes a lot to really rock your role at that point because, well, you, it's it's nothing like that big thing you experienced. So The worst eh. has already happened at that point. Right. So eh, The only thing know. I can really see him reacting to is if somebody destroyed the garden section of the hardware store. Right. Or something happened to his dad. I mean, he was, he was not happy about the... Um, weather incident that I will not define. Or the flat tail boys. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the story. (laughs) So you're mentioning Digger, and I know that he's a great secondary character. What makes a good secondary character? Secondary characters, um, they serve as a backdrop, a foil, or an encourager. Digger is an encourager. Um, He also pulls the rug out from underneath his friends now and again just because he can, but... Um, the other, the two main characters know that he's stable and they can lean on him. Um, and he, he does what he can, but, um, you know, Elsie kind of rubs him the wrong way at times. They've been friends forever. But they've been friends forever. And, um, the thing with secondary characters, they have to fulfill a role in the world. You have adults, you have children, um, but they, they have to move the plot forward in some way. I, uh... Have uh, I have to say some of my favorite secondary characters come from a story I wrote uh, called Daisy and Jack, and all the all the characters are based on animals I actually knew. So if anyone's read those books, yes, those those animals existed with those personalities. I didn't embellish much. Um, <laughs> and Tyler the goat, one of the secondary characters in that story, um, he's a pygmy goat who honestly believes he's a horse, and I have people ask me. Does a goat do that? Yes. Tyler the goat in real life, actually, he, he lived on a farm I worked on. And he actually thought, he was he was completely convinced that he was a horse. And the three horses he lived with were happy to encourage him in this delusion because it meant that he could stay awake while the rest of them napped. Because horses will never all sleep at the same time. There's always one awake. But there's three horses zonked out in the field, snoring up a storm. And Tyler's right in the middle, this little pygmy goat. And he's looking around. He's thrilled. I had to brush him every day or he'd headbutt me. Um, so I took Tyler and I put him into 
the world of Daisy and Jack. And more or less, his purpose is to bring comedy and to and talk about stability. He destabilizes that whole environment. He adds this touch of unpredictability to it. But then you have his penmate Trudy, who is annoyed with Tyler's delusion that he's a horse. She's a goat. She's proud of it. Well, she's got her own delusions. Um, so she tends to be the overly pragmatic one. So you mix those two and it's definitely an unstable situation. So to level things out, then I add Obadiah the Bat, who lives in Daisy's stable. And Obi is a pragmatist. And he's objective and he's calm and he's organized usually. There's a few times he loses it. But each of the characters does something to change the environment that Daisy and Jack are in because Daisy feels things intensely, but she's not the type to create situations. Jack is just looking for, he's a dog. He's just looking for something to chew on, something to chase. But, you know, neither of them really create drama. So I need these secondary characters, especially in the context of a farm, to create a dramatic environment for things to happen in. So you have these secondary characters and these primary characters, and they all have a purpose. But how, and of course they show up, but... Having written things myself, I know that you don't always have the details at first. How do you flesh these characters out? Well, again, you have to ask them questions, and it's really good to write things down. Um, I did an um, uh, editing for a number of authors over the years, and I cannot tell you how many times characters' eye color and major features changed in the middle of a book because the author's just thinking about getting from A to Z and they forget. I write things down. In fact, we have uh, a characterization sheet on our um, website. Yeah, mousepawmedia.com. And if you go to the resources page and then the writing section, you'll find the uh, characterization worksheet that um, Annie created. You created this actually quite a few years ago, but we recently expanded it together to um, account for some changes we've made to it over the years, stuff we kept penciling in. Yeah, but it's important to talk to the character and find out what makes them tick. Because, again, you know, you can have a character there, but if you are, if you're doing, especially character-based story, where the character is one that drives the story, you have to know their motivation. You can't know their motivation without their background. And you have to ask questions to, to get their background. And if you're very nice and you treat your character with respect, they will answer. One of my stories is a, is a detective satire. Um, it's a combination murder mystery series and um, complete spoof of detective fiction. So apologies to all of the uh, mystery authors out there that I've completely lampooned. Um, <laughs> but Noah is an interesting character. When I first came up with him, I was just doing these little five-minute mysteries with him online and um, he didn't have a whole lot of depth to him. He was just, he was kind of uh, something of a joke that, you know, he, you have a PI who has no observational skills. And then I thought about expanding this out into an actual book. And I thought, okay, well, who is Noah? For one thing, why does he have the name Noah Clue? Because that is a really unfortunate name. And not all the characters have these joke names. So why is his name Noah Clue? And so I began to ask him, where all this came from and the thing is is that he has a prankster father who thought it was really funny to name his son noah clue and to give him the middle name oswald so his initials would be no clue (laughs) and noah was a professional student he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life he was two semesters away from um he was two semesters away from a uh, like six bachelor's degrees and his father pulls the plug on his college career and tells him go get a job I don't know what to do, Dad. You know what? Work at McDonald's? No. Um, Take your name as a clue. P.I. And so he becomes a a, a private investigator because his dad told him to, but he's not qualified for the job. So you see him in this situation where he's having to do a job that he's wholly unprepared for, um, except without giving too much of it away, he discovers he's more prepared for it than he thought. Um, He just needs a little help from his from his friends and relations to um, pick up the pieces. He can put them together, but he sure as anything can't find them. Well, actually, Noah Clue started out as a, a play that you wrote 
for um, the Yakima Library. Hmm. And you and one of the librarians actually put it on. It was it was quite hilarious. Yeah. The kids loved it. Um, and uh, if, if Rondi Downs is listening, thank you so much for being the original D because um, there's so much about about Rondi that that got incorporated into the character of D. Antendall that um, it was she she brought so much to that character. So you know, talking about where characters come from, you know, sometimes they're inspired by people. The Disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says the characters in this book are entirely fictional is the biggest lie ever printed on paper. We get these characters from everywhere. We just base them off of multiple people and mix and match personality traits. And then but, they just show up that way. <laughs> but they're often based off of people we encounter, especially annoying ones. If if you annoy an author, you will probably wind up as an antagonist or an irritating secondary character in a book. I've seen stuff like that on t-shirts, I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> Don't annoy me, I'll put you in my next book. Actually, it was done to me. I was actually, a friend of ours actually did put me in a book as an annoying secondary character. Oh, no. Never correct never correct an English teacher's grammar. Just don't do it. <laughs> oh, no. There was one author that uh, when somebody would irritate her, she wrote uh, Murder Mysteries. The person that irritated her would usually turn up as the murdered or the murderer, but she would always exact her revenge. <laughs> well, that's pretty fair. It looks like they may have had some motive. Ah. Um, <laughs> Now, when we're introducing a character like Noah Clue or others, how do we how do we introduce a character? What's the best way to go? Well, I always tell writers you want to show it rather than tell. Um, when you have an opening, you don't want to say he was this, that, you know, and, and, and put in a stock description. Um, okay, I'll, I'll read an uh, opening um for um, Mathos Island Mysteries. Sunail Riverworth is the um, point of view character in this. If I don't have my katana this summer, I'll never get another chance. Sunail Riverworth dropped his fork onto the table. Grandfather said this could be the last one. His dark brown arm fur bristled. He wrapped his long, thick tail around the chair leg to keep himself from smashing something. I've always liked the physical descriptions as well as um, the more personality-related descriptions just thrown in that paragraph alone. It was very well-crafted. That's one of the things I like about writing with Anne is because um, every author has their strengths and their weaknesses. Description is not one of my strengths, but it is hers. And she has an uncanny ability to tuck descriptions and... uh, plot fragments, just little hints and clues into the most unlikely of places where you never really realize that you got the information. Um, Because you want to avoid exposition as much as possible, though there can be examples for it. When I introduced uh, the main character, or one of the main characters in a short story I wrote called Fastball, I used a tiny bit of exposition, but I was writing a first-person narrative from the perspective of the guy handing out the bats of the water in the dugout. And I had gotten this line of dialogue in my head just out of the blue. I still don't know where I got it from, but it just popped in my head and I wrote it down and the whole story formed around it. And it was simply Lefty Mikorski was quite possibly the greatest pitcher in the history of minor league baseball. Legend had it that before a batter could react to one of Lefty's curveballs, it had already swung around and hit him in the back of the head. So from this little snippet you can immediately surmise that he's good at the game and you start getting a picture of him in your mind. Um, and a lot of it's going to be the reader's imagination in that case, because I never say, is he tall, is he short, is he blonde, is he brown-haired or red-haired? Uh, it is clear he's left-handed, but you start getting this picture of this guy out of out of this tiny little fragment. So, quick side note, how can you tell when to describe the character... Um, appearances just like you had with Sineo versus with Lefty where you don't really have much description at all. Well, it all depends on what you're trying to do with the story. With um, uh, Fastball, it's a short story, so there's a lot that has to be covered in a very short period of time. So he has less room to do um, massive descriptions. Besides that, um, part of it is that I wanted to leave out descriptions because 
I never defined the year. I never defined the town. I never defined any of the descriptions because I wanted anybody to be able to insert the story of Fastball into their own hometown history to think that maybe this game could have taken place in the baseball field two blocks away, you know, 40 years ago or whatever. I wanted to leave that open to the reader imagination. So I intentionally didn't describe a lot because I wanted to leave that room. Like with um, on Horseradish Creek Gang um, series, you have characters that'll keep showing up. And so you have to present them in such a way that the reader can see them. Um, with um, Lefty, all, everybody in the story is a human. Uh, the Horseradish Creek Gang, they're not. And so you have to have more detailed um, descriptions in order to have the reader understand this fantasy world and all these different races. And then you take Daisy and Jack, where I'm basing these off of animals uh, that I knew. And so I'm, I'm describing them, for example, at the beginning of um, Mystery of the Haunted Hen House, uh, we, we meet Jack Bird Dog. And I actually had the passage here. Good morning, Daisy. Jack the Bird Dog trotted into my stable. I looked up from my oats. My best friend's short, light golden fur glistened in the early dawn light. Hello, Jack. Your fur is still wet. He gripped the floor with all four paws and shook off. I trotted back a few steps to avoid the cold shower. Early morning swim in the pond. I do that when I'm happy. Jack sat down, his tail's back and forth motion brushing the straw off the rough wooden floor of my stable. So you get two pieces of information out of this. You get his appearance... But you also get something out of his personality. He's generally a happy fellow, and that comes out in what he does. He likes going for a swim in the in the pond when he's happy, and he's just generally enthusiastic about life. And then with LC, who's you know a completely different character in the Horseradish Creek Gang, LC peered around a bush. His fluffy, honey-colored head fur tousled as usual. His long, tapered ears stood completely upright. A sign that the Rakah wanted some fun. He wore tan shorts, a light blue t-shirt, and tennis. Across his back, he carried a small leather satchel, his trademark possession. There you are. His blue eyes twinkled with interest. Hey, what's the great smell? Did you save some for me? His friend thought Silanase was food. You really don't want to eat this. It's a sealant. Aw, it's making me hungry. Elsie sat on a nearby stump. Do you have any food handy? So you get an idea that, you know, what else he looks like, but he carries a satchel with him everywhere. So that gives another part of his personality. Is he OCD? Does he, is he a hoarder? You know, what, what? And you have to read through the story to pick up some more uh, information. And note, part of this also involves the dialogue. He's always hungry. First thing he's asking for was food. It's priority sealant. one is food. Priority two is fun. That's... Yeah. <laughs> now, these characters just pretty much walk in the story. They pretty much handed out their hand and shook it. Uh, or shook your hand. But what's a good example of... Because just like in real life, we don't always meet people like straight up front. Hi, I am this person. Oh, I am this person. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you hear about a character first. And so what's a good example and why do we have indirect character introduction? Well, I think there's a few examples out of the Horseradish Creek gang. Um, but... One that's coming to mind right now, actually, um, is uh, you can sometimes introduce two characters in one shot. Um, and actually, I have an example of that where I introduce um, Obadiah the Bat in Daisy and Jack. And in the process, I'm actually introducing the chickens. And uh, the chickens are, they're mass introduced um, because it isn't until later in the series that you start meeting their individual personalities. But they're just basically... A blustering flock of feathers and hysteria. That's the best way to describe them. So in introducing Obadiah, I have, Good morning, you two. Obadiah the bat swooped into the stable and hung from one of the rafters. I can't tell you how glad I am that it's morning. I looked up at my nocturnal roommate. Why? What happened? Well, for one, the big swarm of insects I was expecting bypassed the ranch by a few miles and I had to catch up with them. 
Second, my head hurts. Such a racket from the chicken pen. He stretched his wings. You want those flies by your ears? And then we have, um, well, the cousins in um, Mayapto's Island Mystery, if, if you'll take that on. Of course. Sinea's mind transported him to the beach on Mayapto's Island. He thought of past bet races he had watched and the excitement that coursed through the crowd. What chance did he have to win this year against either of his cousins? He didn't mind racing against Eric since he wasn't the type to rub it in. But Marneo had changed over the past couple years for the worse. Besides being a cheat, he'd never let his cousins live down a loss. So you get a pretty good picture of Marneo as being a very caustic individual that you really didn't want to spend a whole lot of time with. And by contrast, Eric being a very gracious individual who just feels like, you almost feel like that he could be everybody's favorite cousin. And then you meet them later on in Mythos Island Mystery and you get to see their characteristics fleshed out um you've got digger over there you want to yep okay so digger was introduced in this manner that's odd why wasn't digger here normally when the shy tazavak wasn't in school he helped his father but today Sineo could find no sign of him he peeked around the aisle he'd talk to the storekeeper as soon as the customer was gone okay so you get an idea that he's shy but then in winds of change there's more information about digger he grimaced as he thought of his Tazavak pal. Hopefully the voyaging Ubibit model the Italian tribe leader had sent along would appease his disgruntled friend when he learned about the Maetos Island adventures. Most folks only saw the quiet side of the stocky gardener, but his closest friends knew better. Digger would make Elsie's life uncomfortable for leaving him behind. So, while Digger appears to be shy... He definitely has his passions. Still waters <laughs> run deep. <laughs> That's for sure. I've known quite a few people like that. They're not the fastest to warm up to strangers, but once they know someone, then their mischievous side starts to come out. Um, we were talking about um, mass or multiple characters. That's true. It can be very overwhelming, like if you have a group of people, to introduce them all at once. So what's the best way to tackle that? Well, it has to be in the context of the story and who's important for that particular scene. Um, you have in, uh, Jason has in uh, uh, Daisy and Jack where um, they have to confront the chickens. You wanna... Yeah, they're, the, the chickens, again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of introduced um, a couple of times just as this massive hysteria. But you start meeting individual birds as the series goes on. And there's one in which they are trapped in Daisy's uh, stable during a blizzard. And to pass the time, two of the chickens, Nutmeg and Cinnamon, start telling this story that they had made up because the farmhand, Lucas Martinez, had left a comic book by the uh, chicken house. And so they had found this comic book and they came up with this whole ridiculous uh, story about chicken superheroes, which was fun to write because it was answering the question, if a chicken came up with a superhero story, what would that be like? <laughs> so we meet Nutmeg and Cinnamon individually, and we learn more about them through, not only through their dialogue, but through the story they came up with. I also introduce uh, the... Uh, rooster, the rather delusional rooster in Mystery of the Haunted Hen House, and it's established that he's kind of the source of the hysteria. Um, and Plymouth was again an actual bird I knew. Gorgeous animal, completely stupid. But uh, we meet him in Mystery of the Haunted Hen House. Morning, Plymouth, ladies. Jack stopped in front of the huddled mass of feathers and raised his eyes to focus on the rooster. Obadiah said there was a ruckus last night. What happened? Plymouth reared up and flapped his wings. The hen house is haunted, that's what. Haunted? I glanced at the little red building. How can it be haunted? It's haunted because there are ghosts living in it. Plymouth narrowed his gaze at me. Or are you too good to believe in ghosts? I stumped my hooves. I'm not too good, chicken breath. I'm too logical. There are no such things as ghosts. Tell that to the ones living inside. Cinnamon, the red hen, shuddered and huddled closer into the group of her flockmates. So you have all these wonderful characters here. 
and, you know, writing a series, it needs to evolve over time or else you run out of material pretty quickly. How do you know it's a good time for a new character to be introduced? Again, it has to do with moving the plot forward. So you have, like, there are a lot of mysteries in Winds of Change, and you bring in bits and pieces to expose the mystery, but you don't dump it, you sprinkle it through so that you have little bits here and there. And we'll go into that in the next uh, podcast. Absolutely. Uh, On that note, I would say that um, you can typically know it's time for a new character when either that particular character is necessary to express the story you're trying to tell in that moment. Um, Actually, that's really the only reason. You know it's time to introduce a new character when they are needed for that particular moment. You briefly meet, um, in Noah Clue, you briefly meet David Sigfield. Noah's best friend. And in that situation, it's just meant to show a contrast between Noah's life before D, his cousin, showed up and after. But then we don't see him for a while, except in passing, until a later book in which he is actually helping to solve a case. And we start learning about David's near-perfect memory and his tendency to really mess with people. But that wasn't needed until David was needed to provide a clue for the story. All right, listeners, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, but we'll pick up the rest in the next podcast. Annie and Jason, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, and everybody have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. We have reached the strangest phenomenon to ever occur in the programming department of Mousepaw Media. We're calling it the Great Academic Leave of 2017. Everybody went missing at the same moment uh, due to academic concerns. This is uh, Jason McDonald, CEO, lead developer at Mousepaw Media. I'm Jared Thomas, assistant lead developer. And uh, Jason Groggett, senior developer. This is going to be a lot of fun editing this later because there's a lag that's pretty but, big. Lag. Yeah, but that's all right. Yeah, this is this is this is what happens when you when you work over the internet is you get is you you use tools like we're on Discord right now actually recording this. So I've got Jarek in the same room as me and the Nates in far corners of the world, also known as Moscow. I don't mountain mountain, mountain home. home. Pardon me. Which, I, I, I still, it still kind of is weird to wrap my brain around the fact that a, a, a skinny state like Idaho has two time zones. That just, that, that, that feels wrong in so many ways. <laughs> I have to say, looking at the time zone maps is the most hilarious thing because it literally is just like, nice straight line and then you get up to the top of Idaho and it just caves in. And you're like, why did you? Okay. <laughs> Reasons. Yeah, I, I have I have a world map on my wall, and to look at the international dateline, you'd think it would just follow a single latitude. No, no, it crosses three or four latitudes in the process of of dodging certain islands. It actually folds, doubles back on itself in a few places. It's just the dateline is just the weirdest thing on the map. It's so it's. Talking about weird things, as I mentioned, we had the great academic leave of 2017, and so, Jarek, you were out getting ready to graduate. Yeah, I was gone three weeks, I think. Something like that. Four weeks. And then uh, assistant lead developer Alex Price, we have two assistant leads, had two assistant leads. Alex Price left to uh, finish out uh, a particularly brutal semester or quarter, and... um, just things wound up that we have a revolving door at this company when it comes to assistantly developers because we're working with college students and as anybody who's been through college knows sometimes you just get nailed so in 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 view of the upcoming semesters or quarters pardon he, he he's like yeah i i i don't think i'm gonna i don't think it's a good idea for me to try to come back right now <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so, so passing the baton to who knows yet. Um, and then Nate, you wound up being the only senior developer on staff um, those last few weeks there. Indeed, it turned out that my really difficult time frame was a couple weeks before then, 
So just as I was getting off of my challenging weeks, everyone else was getting on theirs. So it worked out perfectly in terms of the company, but at the same time, really weird. It was especially weird because I had a... Okay, so the week we're trying to get Paul about the door, which is actually releasing the same day as this podcast. Um, but we're trying to get Paul ready to go um, like the end of May. And... I have an eye appointment that involves those lovely little drops that dilate the eyes. And the last time I, I got those, I had a headache for like a week. Thankfully, they did it They did it in such a way this time where I didn't have a headache. So I'm very thankful for that. But I had to plan for that. So so I'm thinking, okay, Jarek is out. Alex is out. Um, so I, I'm then thinking, okay, Fox, Chris Frazier, who is um, an assistant lead developer in the past, um... Like, hey, can you run it? He said, well, I would, but uh, I have an eye appointment that day, too. <laughs> With the eye drops. And I get a headache for three or four days. Like, what are the chances of this happening? So, then I'm like, I'm on the phone begging Nate at that point. Please help. So. <laughs> yep. Ergo the, ergo the benefit of working with four different universities, because then you have the one guy from U of I who is done before everybody else. Victory! <laughs> <laughs> so, U of I's academic schedule saves the day. U- ultimately, the the academic leave uh, was rather convenient because we had tumbleweeds bouncing through the uh, video chat room for like two weeks there. <laughs> no one was there. Just everyone is gone for like two weeks entirely. And, uh, of course, that turned out to be very convenient because we were switching servers at the time. So I just I decided, well... No one's here. I guess it's a good time to migrate the mail servers to the new, the new hosting because nobody's around. So there's no emails to get lost because there's no one sending any. <laughs> so uh, t- timing works out pretty providentially like that sometimes. We were looking at our different projects and how each one has a different ways it has to be run. Almost yeah. every project is different in. One aspect or another. It was uh, very interesting transitioning because as an individual who's been working on Puppeteer for the last uh, two years, basically, and having to take care of the Olive project and trying to fix it up before release, it was amazing to see how differently it was made. Well, if, if we were to... We were, we were actually, before this, we were looking at a lot of the software methodologies. and uh, I find software methodologies to be an interesting topic because they're intended to be... I figure most of them show up because somebody, and actually most of them do if you read their histories, most of them show up because somebody comes up with an, a novel way um, of managing a project and it works really well at their company and then they write a book about it. And in the book they purport that, okay, this is this is great, this is brilliant, everybody should use this. Or at least they say other people should use this and then somebody inserts the word everybody and then you have people trying to apply it to every situation under the sun. I mean, we have we have Waterfall, which is just the name that was, I think, honestly retconned into traditional software development. Uh, you got the extreme programming, which its detractors call make crap quickly. <laughs> you have Agile. You've got Scrum. That's why do they call it Scrum? I don't know. I, I've never read it. It's just. I was looking at Agile the other day. Can't find out, and don't want to look up what the word Scrum meant originally. So. It was, maybe maybe it was an think, acronym. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Is an acronym. It, what it is is one letter short of scum. That's that's the unfortunate <laughs> part of it. So it it it's and, and it, it works in some cases, and this is the thing: methodologies all have their place. They work somewhere, but I think the problem is when when they become a management fad, and and we try applying them to projects on the merit of the methodology rather than on the merit of the project or the what the project needs, and then and then all the helps and aids of the methodology really just become stumbling blocks for the programmers. Just one more thing to do before we can write the code. Uh, we, we were looking before, like I said, we were looking before the podcast at some of these different methodologies and, and, and Puppeteer seems to follow um, and, and I should actually mention that we're not experts on any of these. I We had to look them up beforehand because I I'm one of those weird people that believes in, in 
using the tool, that the tool exists for the person, not the other way around. So I rarely study management techniques from a perspective of here's ways to do it, because if we need to do it that way, then uh, the project will kind of show signs of needing a different approach. So otherwise, I'm if it ain't broke. Uh, but when we're looking at Kanban, I started realizing, you know, this is this is kind of what's going on with Puppeteer, because... You know, you've got the, you've got the, it's feature driven and you've got what are referred to as the user stories. And, and Nate, you said you're not even overly familiar with Kanban, but that's how it wound up being run. Yeah, it was interesting as you were describing Kanban to me because the user stories is a big part of it. Uh, anything to deal with XML means that you have some user that needs to partially that information, gather it and use it in some way. So... The idea and question behind Puppeteer is how do we make it easiest for the user to get not only access to that data, but manipulate it. And so a lot of libraries are out there that are great for use of XML. Puggy XML is what we're using for the base of this, but what does the user need? And so I've had to ask that question and I've built a few things here and there. Some of them have failed, but other ideas are still in development and may work. It's just a matter of trying to get it right for the user. Failure is a wonderful thing. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a strange thing to say, but failure is is a wonderful thing because it meant we tried something and we learned something. Oh yeah, most yeah you, you learn the most when you fail. Yeah, um, I, I like how Einstein put it. Not Einstein. Wow, I'm getting my <laughs> quotes mixed up. I liked how I, I like how Edison puts it. Um, I think it was Edison who said, I, "I I didn't. I haven't failed. I've just found a thousand ways that didn't work." Mm-hmm. Um, I learn more as a programmer by completely screwing things up than I do by doing them right. <laughs> yeah, learning how not to do it. <laughs> Just go through trying to trying to write the code, and and I, I, I mean the original version of RatScript was an interesting experiment. It, I I um retroactively named it RatScript Burris after the scientific name of the nonsense rat. Because that's what I kind of viewed the code as afterwards, utter nonsense. But what I did is I wrote a programming language in ActionScript, which I don't recommend. Um, it served its purpose, but it was a te- it was a terrible language. The way I originally designed RatScript was pretty awful. I like the newer version a lot better. But um, I, I was using regular expressions for <laughs> language parsing, which anybody who's done language parsing yeah. knows regular expressions are the last thing you <laughs> want to do. Which is why we invented Simplex Press, actually. Just a miracle. <laughs> so if if I hadn't completely screwed up and and uh, and built such a terrible language prototype using regular expressions, we probably wouldn't have done Simplex Press. We wouldn't have seen a need for it. Uh, and that and that one uses you, you, Jarek. You were talking about that one kind of fits more of an agile model. Yeah. So the way when I was working on it, the way I developed it was I'd look at like my feature set that I needed and do the ones that. <clears throat> were like more important at the time and get those developed and built and hopefully working and then I'd go back and look at the feature set again and then do another sprint of getting the next features working and of course we're, we're rarely complying with the entirety of the methodology yeah. but no. you know just little little bits and pieces here kind of kind of resemble oh yeah because the specification changed many times as I kept going back and looking at it. Specs are weird things. Specs evolve. Um, and if the spec isn't evolving, then there's usually a problem because like, for example, um, I was actually helping with, uh, I, I found a bug in LibreOffice, um, which we use a lot at the company. And the, basically the bug was that if you set the page offset for a document that the page numbers will indeed offset by the amount you specify. But if you only have 50 pages in the project and you set an offset of say three, then when you reach page number like 48, where you would expect it with an offset of three to say 51, it would instead be blank. And so I fixed this bug, but it was ultimately rejected. And the reason it was rejected, the fix was rejected, is they said, well, the spec actually outlines this behavior. I'm like, so because the bug was specified, we're going to implement it? We have, that particular bug has been reported only about 200 times. I'm dead serious, about 200 times 
in the in the history of LibreOffice, going back to when it was StarOffice. It has been reported and reported and reported and reported. It's been on the list for over a decade, and it has never been resolved because it's in the spec. <laughs> That's hilarious. So... That's very unique. (laughs) And I love LibreOffice, but just like, it's like, change the specification. But to do that, you have to talk to the committee. And unfortunately, now we're dealing with it as a design by committee issue. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Has many problems. (laughs) Not not, not that specs are useless. I mean. Right. But specs by committee is interesting to deal with. Yeah, it's actually there was there was a really uh, there was a really interesting uh, article by uh, Ben. I got this name wrong earlier. Ben Hilburn. Hilburn. Thank you, Ben. Not Ben Helpern, who is the founder of Practical Dev, but Ben Hilburn. And this is on. Um, you can find this on uh, Dev Two uh, Dev To. Excellent website for articles. And he was actually talking about um, a section in a CIA field manual from World War Two describing how you can sabotage the... And if you're in an enemy country, how you can sabotage their resources and the factories and whatever just by being a citizen, doing the work, but looking for opportunities to sabotage your workplace. And it had a section devoted to people in management, and it talked about designing by committee and to demand that everything go through a committee of no less than five people. And it's... I'm, it's a very clever article because he's talking about did 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 somebody you know think this was business advice because this is how a lot of companies operate you know actually following the five tips from the CIA for sabotaging an organization that's interesting it's all a conspiracy Jason <laughs> yeah. everything's a conspiracy <laughs> conspiracies are a conspiracy um I would hope where's so. my tinfoil hat. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, although again specs do have their place uh, actually one where we're really needing a formal specification is the NRA project which um, none of well I I work on the NRA project more than more than you guys so you're both in the we have two teams yeah I don't think I've ever even touched NRA yeah my entire time here yeah so. we, we've got two teams one's effectively data processing and then the other is graphics processing. I mean, if if or med- multimedia processing, if you were to overgeneralize what the teams do, and um, the the graphics and multimedia processing team, which we refer to as the Impossible Missions Force, because they're trying to create an animation engine in C plus plus from scratch. Um, which I mean, it's possible; it's been done before, but it's certainly uh, a daunting task. Um, they've been kind of chasing their tails for a while because we've been trying to nail down what Anari is supposed to do. And how it's supposed to behave, because there's all these different interlocking pieces. And finally, we all looked at each other and went, we need a formal spec written up. So we're actually going to be meeting uh, later this month to actually draft a formal specification for an ARI. I mean, all, other projects that have specs, like RadScript and Simple Express, we write out kind of what, what we want it to do, what the syntax looks like, how it behaves. But like we have to go above and beyond with, with an ARI. It's the true waterfall. Yeah. We have to finish spec before we can even think about moving on. And on that note, test-driven development's impossible because how do you test? Uh, how do you write a test for a graphics engine that doesn't exist? You know. Yeah. <clears throat> Create animation and then test it with something that's not built. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, Andrew is most likely among us to be a time lord, so maybe he. Maybe if we find his TARDIS, he can he True. can go forward in time, write the tests, and then bring them back to us. <laughs> but then at that point, you just go forward and bring back the project. And That's finished. true. That's true. Unless it's a fixed point in time, we don't want to. We True. don't want to mess with that. <laughs> and then, of course, I've been devoting most of my time recently to working on the website, which I guess you could say is a waterfall project. Actually, it feels more like a rock slide, is what it feels like. Um, I have broken all conventions we normally follow with the company, and I have one giant task on our bug tracker that has a checklist of every single page on the website, and I'm just checking one off at a time. <laughs> because how else are you supposed to do a website, honestly? You're, I'm having to write information for, you know, 30, 40 pages. 
which takes a surprisingly large amount of time for mostly moving stuff from an old website. So we have all these different ways we're approaching projects, but I, I think there are some things we have in common. Like one of the main ones is every project has our set standards where like we start with what we need and like we stick to like our coding standards and like that's our kind of our underlying basic structure. And then from there our every team member is able to go off and do what they think is best for the project using that standard. And then to make sure that things are actually meshing together, we have a pretty good task management system. Pretty much, if uh, we have a general rule, if it's not, if it's going to take more than five minutes to build it, uh, put up a task. Make it so that we are very clear on what's going on in the project, so that if someone, like, you know, things get busy, and one of us may need to leave for uh, the end of school or <laughs> other reasons, and maybe for so four months. Sometimes we, yeah, maybe for four months, <laughs> and so people need to be able to come in and say, "Oh, this is what's going on. This needs to be fixed now." And, do it. So we manage the task pretty well, no matter what kind of form of development we're doing. We have a standard around here we call quantified task management, and I I, I want to stick a massive ten foot asterisk on this and just say please don't please do not use this as the next man management fad. If people go on speaking circuits talking about how every project should be using QTM, I'm going to cry. But. Uh, because I don't know if it's going to fit everything, but, you know, it works very well for us. And what it does is um, it has four four measurable criteria, four quantified criteria for every task. We have the obvious priority of how soon does this need to be done. And then we have a separate measure called gravity, which is how important is this? Because something can be super important to the project, but you're not going to be able to do it for nine months. And so you want to remember it's a it is very important, um, so that when you reprioritize later, you can put that at the top of your list. But you don't want that getting in the way of all the stuff that has to be done right now. Uh, and then we have the friction, which is kind of a rough measure of how difficult it is based on what resources are available. And then the uh, the relativity, that's coming handy. That one, yeah, that one's always fun to try to figure out. Relativity is kind of how likely is this to turn into a black hole, which is a black holes are real things in programming that they're tasks that suck up inordinate amounts of time and seem to have no end. Like the, this shouldn't be too hard. Oh Quote. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my big mouth. Hey Scott, write a string class. It should only take a weekend. Two years later now? <laughs> yeah, two years. Yeah, Jarek here is now finishing up what Scott started a year ago. Or two years ago. So it's like, yep, we're on our second year of one string. Oh my gosh. Me and my big mouth. So yeah, never never tell software how when it's going to be done. It will prove you wrong. <laughs> you know, the thing with our standards and our, our tasks and our methods is that the point is they exist for us. We, we rewrite our standards and our... Uh, policies based on how our team is working and if something is sticking if something isn't working then we we will rewrite it yeah it's very malleable is that the right word yeah malleable is pretty yeah good. very malleable like pretty much every like as since we have so many new people coming in and out and people leaving like every like kind of every time we get a new person we change a little bit on what our actual standards are for that team it's never a rigid set thing that everybody has to adapt to. It adapts to what the team needs. I, I do know that all of our all of our records from previous things, tasks, and whatever was really helpful because, of course, Bo Volweiler, who joined our team recently, he joins in the middle of the great academic leave of 2017. So um, he was used to teams of one to three people in meetings. And then now to have, what, seven people a meeting again. I think, yeah, I think we're finally back up to the seven, six yeah. or seven. And then week after next we'll have Sergio back, and that'll bring us to full, nice. yeah, full strength again. Kind of. Yeah. What, yeah we've achieved <laughs> normality, whatever that is. <laughs> our, our meetings, actually, uh, and you, you usually lead those. Yeah, currently, since Alex left and Scott left. I've taken those over. Yeah, so they... Pretty much they resemble a stand-up meeting for Agile, only we do them 
weekly instead of every day just because of time and the fact that we don't have an office so yeah. it's hard to wrangle everybody together on an online meeting every single day so we do a weekly meeting and in those we pretty much just say what did you do last week what are you going to do and then if there's any big company things right with lots of awkward pauses and silences yeah thrown the, in there the classic question of does anyone have anything else at which point we all stare at each other uh for about a minute <laughs> And then at which point I'll just say, well, I'll take that as a no. I don't <laughs> know why this happens. That has a, And Nate, you've seen that happening since you joined this company two years ago. Yeah, it's been interesting because it's been kind of... We had a little format where if we had nothing to say, we would say nay. Uh, if we had something to say, we'd just say it. And then that just disappeared. Just was gone. Scott, Scott started that, that trend. I understand, trend. but yeah. I was just surprised that it didn't last. Uh... So. We should try to bring it back. Don't know. I think that would help a yeah. lot in meetings. Yeah, that and that, and we have to ask each individual person, you, 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 you. That way everyone has to say something, even if it's just no, you know. They have to say yeah. something, because it's... It, I think a lot of us are introverts. There's a few that aren't, but a lot of us are introverts, and so Who it just... Isn't? Oh, Nate, I don't think you'd be classified as an introvert, would you? I actually am. It's uh, unique. I'm very capable of being an extrovert, but I get my energy recharged by not being around people. So you're an introvert? So you are an introvert. Okay, so I I, I take it back. And actually, I should have guessed that I'm the same way. People go, well, you talk a lot. You must be an extrovert. No. (laughs) No, No, we're just closet introverts. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, my idea of a good evening is a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and an Agatha Christie book. That's my idea of a good evening. That's <laughs> Lots of alone time. Time to get oh, away from yeah. other people and recharge. <laughs> so. Of course, it's kind of funny because as introverts, we, we can recharge each other a little bit because you can just be in the same room and stare at each other and some of these sub uh, subaural, you know, vibrations going on <laughs> between us. Well, I think a large part of it is that as introverts, we're not nece- we don't necessarily have awkward pauses when we're among other introverts. We just kind of sit down and we're like, "All right, it's quiet. We're all good with that. Just chill." Right. Yeah, we don't say what doesn't need to be said. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think we we don't usually bring up the weather unless it's really crazy. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. And our, our teams, you know, we were talking a little bit about our teams, but our teams really are a revolving door. I mean, it, this is a 240-hour yeah. internship, six hours a week, mostly college students. And so people come and people go, and we've gone through one, two, three, four, what are you, the fifth assistant lead developer in this company? I think so, yeah. Something like that. Fourth or fifth? Sixth. 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 Yeah. Because, well, promotions don't work the, quote, normal way around here because an assistant lead developer or a team lead or a project lead isn't considered a promotion. It's something that you can step into when you uh, when you need to, when you're needed and when your ability and your experience and your desire to do the job all line up. And you can step into it. And then when you're done, when you want to just write code, when you don't want to have that responsibility anymore, you can just step out of it again. So it's, I think that lends to the revolving door, but it also means that, you know, we can have changing of the guard without a whole lot of enmity. It has been pretty smooth switching from Scott to Alex to me. There hasn't been too many, like, hiccups because of that in the company, as far as I know, anyway. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there have been, and you've, and you've seen most of those assistant leads, Nate, because you were, you were here pretty early on. I think the only... Uh, one that caused a little bit of a hiccup was the transition with uh, Brian leaving because he knew a lot on the Inari side. And so, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened over there that we lost a lot of people all at the same time on that one team. Oh. That's really where we had the biggest issue. We yeah. did. I forgot about that. We That's lost, like, right. What was it, like three people? It was like Perhaps a mass migration. Time. Yeah. It was terrible. Which did not help the project. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I don't know if Anari ever recovered, but <laughs> yeah, because we pretty much threw Sergio into it because we had to after we finished up. What did you work on? Pause. Yeah, he was working. He was working on 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 flex bit, and yeah. then we're like, here, Audrey's leaving. Go learn Anari. You're the only person around here who's been here long enough to know anything about this. 
<laughs> he was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and he's done an admirable job. I mean, I really had to hand it to Sergio. He's, yeah, no, he's done really well with it. Absolutely. And moved it forward Definitely. quite a bit, actually. But that, that team's had a lot of... And then, of course, when Brian left, he also left Punchline, um, which... Punchline, by sheer nature of its design, it was supposed to be an SVG parser, but if anyone's actually read the W3C specification for SVG, um, that thing gives me nightmares. Because it's so complex. There's about 15 ways to express any given thing, and it's just so chaotic. And Punchline's supposed to be able to handle all of this chaos and somehow make sense out of it, and so the code base is huge. It's absolutely massive, and there's not a single person in the company that can read it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, no, we 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 just last time we had an IMF planning meeting, we just looked at each other and went, I don't think we're going to do SVG imports on this first version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe we can throw Andrew at it. Yeah. <laughs> after. <laughs> I, I don't. Go, Andrew, go ahead. I, I I don't know if I, I don't I don't know how how good of an idea that is because Andrew has this amazing ability to focus on details that none of us can see, which is really really helpful when working on an RA because he can spot the little inconsistencies and and but the of course the problem is when you when you drop him into something as nebulous as the SVG specification uh we may never see him again <laughs> so sitting they, in the closet you, just yeah, reading. yeah Brian Brian was a Brian was a 10,000 10,000 foot view kind of guy he could he could get up there and he could just look at the whole thing and uh, so I think I think we're gonna have to have another Hawkeye, basically. Take it over eventually. Take it over, yeah, because yeah. But I mean, I I know I would never be. I tried, but I'm I'm like Andrew. I'm I'm a hyper focused guy. I can I can go really deep, and I tend to over engineer things. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I cannot tell you that. We could do a whole other podcast about Jason over engineering things. So, <laughs> basically, in summary, I think we call our method reality driven development because life doesn't fit into boxes. We just adapt what we're going to do for each team and each project and each individual. And 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 if it's something's not working, we're gonna we're going to adjust it. And and I think to an outsider, it could look like utter chaos, but. To us, it's normal. What we yeah. call normal. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my first couple weeks coming in and trying to figure everything out. There was a lot of stuff set up and things that were going on, but I, you know, once you get into it, it really becomes very clear what's going on. So it may be chaos at first, but it's it's only like a dust storm on the outside. We're sitting in the eye of the storm the entire time. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that coming in. It was very daunting to come in and look at since I came in working on Simplex Press it was very daunting just coming in looking at like the standards and what Simplex Press Simplex Press was back then and then now it's like oh this is easy like yep. it's what we do absolutely reality driven development so uh, actually before we close out I think we should probably briefly say a word about Polyb here because you know it's releasing today you know the same day as this podcast is released and um, the po- Polyb's been in progress for about two years now so it's it's exciting to get this thing out the door <laughs> yes, alive finally. <laughs> uh, finally so Nate you were you were kind of the oh you were literally the lead on the Polyb task force finishing this thing up so I, I'll, I'll give you the honor how would you how would you describe Polyb to somebody who had no idea what this was? So, Polyb is essentially a second approach. Uh, a lot of the things that we've done in Polyb is things that we saw in regular programming, things that are considered standards that haven't been questioned, and we sit down and we go, "Why haven't they be questioned? Haven't been questioned?" And so we go and try to build these same things that we see. Um, for example, the classic I.O. stream. We've ended up building I.O. channel. It allows a new way for people to output information to a terminal. And so we wanted to make it so that people could have a new opportunity to try or, or to do things in a new way. 
And I think that it's important that we did this because it gives not only the people that were working on the project experience with building these things, but allows people to realize, you know, it's okay to reinvent the wheel. It's okay to go, no, this doesn't do what we need it to do. Uh, as the leader of the Polyp Task Force and going through it, it was really interesting because you could see different people's hands in different areas of code. I very much managed a lot of the code reviews and sat down and I read through a lot of that code trying to figure out, hey, is everything working exactly like we expected to? Are the sanitizers good? Where is everything? And it was kind of cool because you could see, oh, hey, obviously you could see a change in people developing from here to here because of the way they started to write code just a little bit differently. But it all meshed together to complete these rather impressive project and the final thing, Polyp. It's 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 exciting to see it go out the door. And you know, some some of these things may ultimately some of these ideas may ultimately wash out and not work, but you know, like we talked about earlier, you know move fast and break things. <laughs> if you're afraid to break things, then it becomes hard to be a programmer. Because to test what you have written, mm -hmm. you have to try to break it. You want to see what stress you can put it under. Yeah, you pretty much have to break it so you know how to handle the breaks when the users get it. Right. Yeah, it's easy to play it safe. You can't play it safe when you code and make something that's memorable to the majority of people. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, really appreciate uh, being able to talk with you and... Uh, Appreciate your help uh, keeping this crazy, uh, unusual programming team running. And somehow getting software actually released. Thanks again to Anne and Jason McDonald, Nate Groggett, and Jared Thomas for joining us today. Our music is Outer Orbit by Revolution Void. It was licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. For this and more great free music, check out the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Distribution of this podcast was made possible by the Internet Archive, a nonprofit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Check them out at archive.org. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0. In other words, you're free to download and share. More information at creativecommons.org. The Mouse Podcast is a production of Mouse Paw Media dedicated to creating innovative solutions for education. You can find out more about our company and projects at mousepawmedia.com. I'm Allie Jensen, wishing you a wonderful day.